meaning you shouldn't have to write down other verses or whatever any of the verses that I plan on using or should be in there so hopefully that will make it easier we are um, God willing going to cover two chapters of Isaiah this morning as we continue our trek through Isaiah um, there's 66 chapters to Isaiah there's 66 books in the Bible um, so uh, there's a connection there I think um, but that's a whole different story so anyway uh, hopefully you have a note-taking guide uh, and uh, because of the length of the passage I'm not going to read the entire passage before we begin I'm going to instead go to the Lord in prayer ask for help and then we'll dive in together to Isaiah 58 and 59 let's pray Father, to say it's been a treat to be together already is, to put it mildly, it is a wonderful thing to be with the people of God gathered around the table, being reminded of the incredible truths of what it is to live life on this side of the cross. That is, to be able to look back at these promises, um, these amazing events that happen. Father, we thank you for them. Lord, now as we look at this text, written 700 years before the event of the cross, but certainly was foreshadowing the cross, I pray that you would help us to treasure even more the incredible gift we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray that we can learn from watching how you dealt with the people of God in the time of Isaiah. I pray that you would bring about in myself, my brothers and sisters here, friends gathered, a love for the things you love, a love for the people that you love. And that as that happens, as we begin to love those things which you love, that we will in so doing love you. We realize that that can only happen by the amazing grace of God, wrought by the Spirit of God. And so we pray for your help. Amen. So the setting of the two chapters we'll be looking at in Isaiah 58 and 59 uh, this morning centers around Isaiah preparing uh, the people of God for the coming discipline of God. The words contained in these chapters were likely penned between 685 uh, B.C. and 715 B.C., thereabouts. But the full discipline of God foreshadowed in these texts won't actually come for another hundred years to, to the, at the year 586 B.C. when the Babylonians would sack Judah and sack the temple. God used this book. And God is using the prophet Isaiah in these chapters to prepare the people for tough times ahead. He has given them reason to hope, given them reason to believe in His salvation, even in the midst of His judgment. So let's go ahead and dive in there. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry aloud. Don't hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. 
The chapter opens with God telling the prophet Isaiah to declare to his people their transgressions, to announce out loud that they have sinned against him. And you're going to see in verses 2 and 3, this is necessary because the people don't seem to think that they are sinning against God. Look at verse 2. Yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. So while God is warning the people for their sin, the people feel as if they are regularly coming before God. They act like they're people doing right things. They act like they want to be near God. In fact, it's good that the prophet declares this to the people because the prophet has to tell them things are not going well because in verse 3, you're going to see the people actually are surprised that God's not holding up His end of the bargain. Look at verse 3. Why have we fasted and you haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So the people, they're not sitting around upset over their failures and their disobedience. They're upset. They're upset that God has not rewarded them properly for their good deeds. They say, you know what? We fasted a bunch. We humbled ourselves, made fools of ourselves, putting ourselves on our knees, prostrate before you, and yet you have not rewarded us. This is called transactional religion. Transactional religion holds that men perform deeds for God and God rewards them in kind. It may include various religious activities done in a transactional manner. Man does something for God by producing some good works for God, giving God some attention. In return, God does something for man, gives him some riches, offers him protection, maybe a good harvest, healthy family. Such transactional religion defines the majority of religions in the world. But it does not reflect biblical Christianity. One of the chief reasons that biblical Christianity cannot be described as a transactional religion is because a transaction always assumes a level playing field. For example, if you're going to do international business, one of the first things that you had better come to agreement on is what currency you're going to use. If you think Starbucks is expensive, can you imagine your astonishment if you're at a coffee shop in India and you order a cup of coffee and the waiter tells you that it's going to cost you 150 You and the waiter have to come to agreement pretty quickly as to whether he is talking about 150 rupees or is he talking about $150? One will cost you $150 and one will cost you $2. Do 
It's necessary because you need a level playing field. The exact same logic works with transactional religion. You need a way that God and man can trade with one another. And this is why transactional religion is not found in biblical Christianity. The Bible rejects transactional religion because it rejects the premise that man can ever have a level playing field with God. Psalm 50, the psalmist describes it this way. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion the perfection of beauty God shines forth. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fields. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. Quite simply, you can't negotiate a trade with another party when they have an unlimited amount of everything you have. <laughs> Friends, are we trying to trade things with God? Are we trying to earn His favor by some type of religious observance? God doesn't need anything. It's not just that He doesn't need anything we can offer. God doesn't need anything full stop. So God's people were upset that God wasn't rewarding them for their religious feats. But it's much worse than that. Not only did God not like their observances, their observances were hurting that which God loves. Look at the rest of verse 3 and 4. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. Oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Far from being impressed by their fasting, God points out three evils He sees in it. Number one, their motive for their religious activities was pure selfishness. They just wanted to get some tangible thing from God. Number two, they oppressed those who were in need. Number three, they treat each other wickedly by fighting and quarreling. And so while they pretend to be coming to offer reverence to God or ask a favor from God, they are destroying the things He loves and cares about. This would be like an entry-level worker showing up at his big-shot CEO's house uninvited to ask for a raise but running over his dog while he pulled in the driveway. And worse than that, not even acknowledging it. God spends the rest of Isaiah 55 explaining to them that if they love Him, 
They will love the things He loves. Here are some things that God lists that they can do that would be things that He loves. And I just picked some of these out of here. Verse 6. Help the oppressed go free. Verse 7. Share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, cover them. Verse 9. Stop pointing fingers and speaking wickedly. Verse 10. Pour yourself out for the hungry and work to satisfy the desire of the afflicted. These are the things that God loves. These are the things that please God. Now make sure, make sure we don't misunderstand. God doesn't need us to get these things done. He no more needs us to love the afflicted than the rich CEO needed the worker to take care of his dog. But if we love God, we will love the things He loves. But not only is God pleased when we love the things He loves, but this is the only way, catch this, this is the only way we are pleased. <laughs> In the latter half of Isaiah 55, God explains that His people will be satisfied only when they love that which He loves. This gets really interesting. Listen, here's some of the consequences. Pull them out for us. Verse 8, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall, shall, shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Verse 10, If you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. Verse 11, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in the scorched places. Verse 12. And your ancient ruin shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up foundations of many generations. Verse 14. Then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. God explains that... The happiness God's people want will be found when they love the things God loves. We really have to pay attention here to something crucial. It feels subtle. It feels real subtle. But it's massive. God is saying to His people, so catch this disagreement. God is saying to His people, you are unfulfilled because you do not love the things I love. That's God's point. You're unfulfilled because you don't love the things I love. But the people are saying to God, we are doing things for you and we're still unfulfilled. Massive difference. Feel subtle. One is Christian. One is pagan. Pagan religion teaches that we do things for God in order to get the things we want. So we show up for church. We give some money. 
We read our Bible all in exchange with God in order to get the things we really want. Money, health, a nice car, spouse, children, a good career, etc. That's paganism. Christianity teaches that we will get the wants we need when we love the things God loves. Christianity teaches we will get the wants that we actually need when we love the things God loves. So notice, pagan religion has a place for doing. Christianity has a place for loving. See the difference? Paganism has doing. Christianity has loving. Further, doing something for someone doesn't result in glory. Doing something for someone results in appreciation. So you do your job and your boss appreciates it. That is called a paycheck. Your boss doesn't leave with praise or glory for himself because you did something, but they appreciate it. When you love a musician, when you love a writer's writing, when you love a thinker, when you love a sports team, what are you doing? You're heaping on to them glory and you're heaping on to them praise. God does not deserve mere appreciation. God deserves glory, which only happens when we love Him. Two crucial points here. First, we don't even know what our wants should be. That's what's coming out here in Isaiah. That's why there's confusion. That's why there's crossfire. That's why the people are saying to God, hey, you're not holding up your end of the bargain. And God's going, huh, huh, really? Right? That's what, that's what this is. It's because God is saying you don't even know what you should want. That's first. Second, we will never have what we want until we love what God loves. But this is where the rub is. You can will yourself to do something that you don't want to do. I personally call that exercise. But you cannot make yourself love something that you don't love. We have little control over our wants. So what do you do? God, you're saying you don't even want the things that you should want. You can't even love the things that you should love. That's what God is saying to broken man. So are we helpless? Are we hopeless? Isaiah 58 just set us up for Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59, verse 1, I think falls so sweetly. Verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand, that's Yahweh. Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. Isaiah 58 
renders us as a dead corpse on a slab. And Isaiah 59 shows up and says this, Huh, I just happen to know someone that can raise dead people. God can raise a dead heart. That's what Isaiah 59 verse 1 is. And you think he's getting ready to dive into something different than what he does. But the first thing he does is if to just keep us afloat. He says in Isaiah 59 1, God, God can take care of this. This isn't too big for God. But then he demonstrates as if to turn back around to the dead corpse and go, just in case you were thinking there was a heartbeat, let me make sure I hook the monitor back up and we all see together flat line. That's Isaiah 59, 2 through 13. Look at verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. This explains exactly what we saw in 58. This is why God and His people are on completely different pages. They're separated from each other. Our problem is a problem of the heart. We need a heart change, not just an actions change. I don't have time to read all of 2 through 13 and expound on all of it, but just listen as some of it is summarized. Verse 3, For your hands are defiled with blood. This is a pretty tough indictment. And your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Verse 7, Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Verse 8, The way of peace they don't know. Verse 10, We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. Verse 12, For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. God goes back to the dead corpse and He describes the fallenness in full detail. He tells us that the fallenness is total and that every part of our hearts are scarred. No part of our heart is left untouched. Two, it's universal. That is, all of humanity is affected by it. Three, it's major. It's a problem we cannot fix. Friend, let me ask you. Do you believe what the Bible says about us? That we are totally fallen. I think we're tempted to believe that while we have messed up, there's enough good things we can do to make up for the bad. While God's a little bit displeased with our mess-ups, He's willing to negotiate with us and as long as we'll start doing some things for Him. That is the talk of pagan religion. That is not the talk of Christianity. According to these verses and to the wide witness of Scripture, we are fallen creatures who are helpless without the sovereign, gracious work of God. So we hear we're in a bad state. But we also know from verse 1 that it's not so bad that God could not solve it. But will He solve it? And if so, how? <laughs> this leads us to the great news 
In Isaiah 59 of the Gospel, look at verse 15. This is Yahweh. The Lord saw it, and it displeased Him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and He wondered that there was no one to intercede. Comes and looks at us. Just shakes His head. It's awful. It's awful. Verse 16. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then... Ah, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing according to their deeds so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. So Isaiah is written 700 years before Jesus was born, and it explains the problem of sin, it explains the problem of our wayward hearts, and it explains that Jesus is the promised salvation. The birth of Jesus was God bringing salvation. While we wouldn't drop our sinful kids off at a questionable daycare for an hour, God the Father sent His sinless, perfect Son into our grossly evil world. The perfect, sinless life of Jesus was God putting on righteousness. Like a warrior who puts on armor, God sent His only Son, Jesus, with an armor of righteousness that was impenetrable by this evil world. And the execution of Jesus on the cross was the incredible act of God the Father treating His own perfect Son as His enemy and pouring out His wrath upon Him like He was the adversary, not His only Son. God brought salvation on His own terms, at His own initiative, and at His full expense. That is good news. That's the Gospel. And part of this salvation is that God will redeem His people and in so doing, He's going to offer them a transformed heart that turns from sin, is indwelt by the Spirit and informed by the Word of God. Tim, where would you get that? It's right out of Isaiah. It's right out of Isaiah 59. Look with me, verse 20. And a Redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forevermore. God is making a promise. He's making a covenant with His people that He's going to redeem them. He's going to change them. So recall earlier we said that Christianity teaches that 
we will get the wants we need when we love the things God loves. So Jesus redeems us and gives us a new heart and a new spirit within us. That's actually the exact language taken out of the prophets. I gave you some uh, references there out of Ezekiel and Jeremiah and then later in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 8. So first and foremost, God raises us from our condition of deadness due to sin to see and love Jesus. Then he begins a process of helping us love the things that God loves. It's by no means immediate. It's a process. As we begin loving the things he loves, we begin wanting things like communion with God, fellowship with God's people, the advancement of the gospel. Friends, I know this sounds like a simple Sunday school question, but it's very important. Have we come to a place where we love Jesus? Let me personalize it. Have you come to a place where you love Jesus? I don't mean you would vote for Him if He were on a ballot. I think we'd all be scared if we had to love every person we voted for. I mean, as, as you've considered the person of Jesus... And his claims, have you come to a place where you love him? You want to follow him? If we love Jesus, we're going to want to know him. We're going to want to be part of seeing his kingdom spread. We're going to want to be around his people. We're going to want to love the things he loves. What does this look like for us as a church to love God? This message, timing-wise, was unbelievable. I, I think our pastor has been preaching about this pretty directly for months. I think the summary of it is, if we love God, we will love the things God loves. Isaiah 58 has given us many of the examples of things God loves. God loves to see the oppressed go free. He loves to see hungry fed. He loves to see homeless with a home. He loves to see the naked with clothes. He loves it when His people take care of each other. Straight out of Isaiah. So we help the oppressed go free when we spread the gospel to the lost. This has to be done in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods. We must participate in this on a global scale. We need to fund missionaries, pray for missions. Many of us need to figure out a way to go on a mission trip to help spread the gospel. Some of us have experience with international travel. We need to figure it out. We need to take a team from Little Cornerstone to some other remote part of the world and love the people that God loves. He will be pleased with it. We need to help the hungry. There are so many who go without food in a land that has so much stinking food. We don't need to feed people to earn points with God. We need to feed people because we know God loves it when a hungry person eats. Some of us have great skills when it comes to organization. Some of you have great skills gifts when it comes to mercy. Don't wait for a pastor 
an elder or a deacon to give the nod? The Word of God is given the nod. Let's figure out how to feed some hungry people. God loves it when hungry people are fed. God loves to see the homeless with a home. Basic shelter, it is such a kind thing to offer. It gives protection, comfort, it gives dignity. We don't have to solve the homeless problem for our entire city. We just need to solve the homeless problem for a person without a home. God is so pleased when a homeless boy or girl or man or woman has a home. We have homes with extra rooms. We got a church with a lot of space. Let's put our heads together. Let's care. Let's figure out how to do something. God loves to see a person enjoy shelter who has been without. God loves it when we take care of one another. He loves it when we check in on each other, send a card, offer a prayer. It pleases the Father so much when His children are being kind to one another. Some of us are gifted with this. You just see other people's needs. Help us send cards. Help us take care of one another. Pray for one another. God loves it when His children do that. I was struck by how helpful I think this 30 days of prayer guide will be in this. It, maybe it's just chance, whatever. The subtitle of it is, Who is My Neighbor? And I think it'll just be real helpful in the province of God that we as a church commit. Let's figure out a way to get it on whatever device we got. They got about 400 options for you to figure it out. Uh, don't ask my father-in-law if you can't figure it out on your iPhone. That was rude of my dad to offer that. That's not the best way to figure that out. Um, if, uh, if you can't figure it out on an iPhone, the easiest thing to do is ask for a printed guide. Um, but let's pray. Let's pray that God will use this. Let's pray together and we will come up with ways to take care of our neighbors. Not because we need to fill some pews. Not because we think the budget's low. Not because we want to have a bigger name. But because we want to love the things that God loves. Pagan religion does things in order to get things. Christians do things because we love the God who loved us first. As we do things God loves, He gets glory. As we do things, He will reshape our wants. He'll reshape our hearts. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You very much for this text. Thank You that it was written 700 years ago. Thank You that 700 years ago You used it to encourage Your people. 700. I keep saying 700. 2,700 years ago You used it to encourage Your people. And I pray now that You would use it to encourage us. Use us Father, to love the things you love, to love the people you love, and in so doing, to please you, Father, uh, that you may receive all the glory that you are due, not mere appreciation, but full glory. We ask for that. We ask all these things to you, Father, through the strong name 
of Jesus, your Son, that you would apply them by your Spirit. Amen. Sang about being ransomed. We've heard about it. We have observed the reason how we were ransomed.